reading from the King James Version. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to him, or to himself, by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imparting their trespassing unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I will also be reading Genesis, Genesis the third chapter, starting with verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eye, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, and Adam and, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree thereof? I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me, she gave me of the tree, and did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all today. 
Um, it's really good to see Nettie with us today. Um, Brother Robinson um, is here, uh, was here, and uh, somewhere around here. Great to see him. It's been a, a long while. I know they've been through a lot. Happy to have all of our visitors here. Um, Sean and Corey's uh, parents are here. It's always good to see them. And just everyone who, who uh, decided to uh, come out and be with us this morning. We know there's a lot of things you could have been doing with your time. Time is, is valuable. There's not a lot of it. And so we appreciate the priority that you made coming together to talk about God's Word, to sing songs, to pray, to eat the supper, and so on. So what lies at the heart of, of reconciliation? Where does it begin? We, we spent the last few weeks here at this church surveying on a kind of superficial level, preliminarily, before we begin to take these deeper dives into some of the aspects of it. Reconciliation and, and, and um, how it, it should be understood in its full biblical context. You can't just take what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and ignore everything else the Bible says about reconciliation. Paul is speaking from a, a worldview that comes out of the Jewish scriptures, the Bible of his day, which has been culminated, has culminated in Jesus Christ and his resurrection and now has put a new cast on many of those passages and uh, a new view of the future in many ways for people like Paul. And so when he speaks of reconciliation, we've got to do what he was probably doing, and that is plugging it into the biblical context, the whole overarching story of the Bible. Um, and when we, we, we've done that in a superficial way over the last few weeks, we've noticed that, that reconciliation in this larger biblical context is a very wide-ranging thing. It extends far beyond the reconciliation of individual human beings to God, which is where Western evangelicals in the modern age tend to focus. That's all the Bible is, a story about how, I, how me and God get right. It doesn't affect how I really, you know, the rest of my life and all kinds of other things. It's just an individual transaction. And that is a very important thing we're going to focus on this morning. But that vertical reconciliation, if you will, um, it should lead on to a kind of horizontal healing in the relationships between alienated people, about which the Bible says a lot. And alienated people groups, because in the new heavens, new earth, there's going to be every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Um, Galatians 3, the text for this week for us in Family Bible said what? There is neither in Christ, Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ and heirs according to the promise to Abraham. And then even as we saw in the past few weeks, again in a preliminary kind of way, uh, even reconciliation impacting the entire universe. Because Paul said to the Colossian church in Colossians 1.20, in Christ God was seeking, quote, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So there's an alienation, a disintegration that sin brought. This centrifugal force of sin takes everything away from the hub, which is God, and the gospel is bringing it back centripetally to the hub of all things, which is God in Christ. He's going to reconcile all things in heavens and on earth. All right, that's what we've been surveying. We'll get into that more in, in uh, deeper uh, uh, dives in, in future lessons, Lord willing. What I want to talk about today, though, is the... the where it all starts, and that is the vertical reconciliation between individual sinners and God. Because if, if, if this ministry of reconciliation doesn't end with individuals being redeemed by God, it certainly begins there. And in many ways, I'm going to try to make the point today, the reconciliation of sinners to God is the, is the heart of the ministry of reconciliation. Look at the language in 2 Corinthians 5, the highlighted part there in red. The ministry of reconciliation begins with individual sinners being reconciled to a God who in Christ Jesus did not count their trespasses against them. These trespasses are things we have in, all done individually. 
but he doesn't count them against us. Instead, enters creation to reconcile us. So over the next few weeks, what we want to do is explore why and how that is the case. Why does the reconciliation of individual sinners to God lie at the heart of all the other reconciliations that the gospel entails? And how does that vertical God-to-human reconciliation come about? The ESV that I'm using today renders Paul's phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As we've noted, other versions say there is a new creation. And in the Greek, as we've talked about this, if you've been here for a while, you're like, quit saying that. But we're not going to forget it. We're not going to just remember it because we've heard it the other way forever. And we've got Bibles that say it the other way. And there's a, there's a certain vagueness in this phrase. Literally, it is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. There's no he at all. There's no it. There's just, there's not even a verb. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. In other words, your whole framework is new creation. Everything old is gone, new is happening. From you on out. So new creature, as the, new King, as the old King James puts it, is not wrong because it involves individuals being made over, reborn. In fact, the context of 2 Corinthians 5 seems to talk a lot about that, doesn't it? About people, individuals getting reconciled. And that's where we're going to start today. Because that's certainly included, no matter which version you, you read. He is a new creation, even there is a new creation, or something like that would include everything, which starts with us. So, what about this phrase, new creation? The phrase new creation, if you're reading it from a biblical perspective, through a biblical lens, this isn't just out of the blue. This harkens back to the old creation. The first creation. Creation is one of the most biblical words you can possibly have, right? The whole Bible starts off with a creator who's giving us creation. It ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with a new creation. And in the middle we read that Christ brings new creation. So to think about new creation, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 where we read about the original creation. You can't really know what new creation means if you don't know what the old creation was. What's new about it? Well, what is creation? What, what was entailed in the narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, we read that it was very good at the point that God created human beings and assigned them the care and cultivation of that creation, if you remember, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's how God left it to them. Here you go. Here's creation. It's very good, and you're part of that, and you're my custodians or stewards over it, working with me, ruling over it, cultivating it, caring for it, Genesis 2.15. But very quickly in the story, in the biblical narrative, by the time we reach chapter 3, end of chapter 3, so like second or third page of the story, you've got a problem. Eden, we have a problem, right? And that, pre uh, that problem is that creation has become tainted and distorted, cursed, to use the Bible word. And the reason for all that is our sin. The sin of Adam and Eve, the primordial pair of human beings. And that's our topic for today. Woohoo! We're going to talk about sin. Uplifting, upbeat, positive topic. The fact is, folks, we need to appreciate, however much it hurts to look at it, however discouraging it might be, we need to appreciate the widespread destructiveness of sin because later we want to backlight the multifaceted healing 
that comes through human redemption to God and reconciliation. And we, to appreciate that, we've got to understand how light isn't very light if dark isn't darker behind it, right? Who cares? If I bring a candle, you know, a tiny lit birthday candle into a room that's already illuminated, you're not going to see it. But if this room is dark like a cave, that thing's going to be the brightest thing in there. So we're going to backlight it today. So bear with me as we talk about a pretty depressing topic. I want to talk about three key aspects of um, human sin as revealed in creation, in the creation fall narratives of, in, in the early chapters of Genesis. All right? So this is our first little installment in a, in a mini-series called The Heart of the Ministry of Reconciliation. And we're focusing here on the vertical, if you will, reconciliation between us as individual sinners back to the God who created us. All right, three key aspects of human sin. We're going to talk about sin's essence. We're going to talk about sin's destructiveness. And we're going to talk about God's response to sin. Okay? Y'all ready? Let's go. Essence of sin. What, what is the core? What's, what is the essence, the heart of sin? Well, the Genesis text tells us there, there was a single prohibition in the garden. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat surely, you may surely eat, rather, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. They're allowed to eat every, of every other tree. It was good for food and beautiful to the sight, we read uh, earlier in Genesis 2. And there's just a single thing forbidden, and that's the tree in the middle of the garden, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, um, a, created, a part of creation enters the garden as well, a serpent. He's called one of the, the beasts of the field, like the others have been called the beasts of the field. So that's interesting that, that, a, lot, that a lot of our problems come from creation. A, a, a warped or disproportionate emphasis on one aspect, aspect of creation can warp our entire relationship to the whole thing. At any rate, this serpent, who's not called Satan here, but later it sounds like he's identified as Satan in Revelation and a couple other places, at least represents the embodiment of evil in some sense, you know, the view of, of things that is different from God's, that's what he does. He, he presents another option, another take on the reality of living in the garden, another possibility for these two uh, first human beings. And Adam and Eve, and that, that's right here, we'll read it just to remind you, I'm sure this is a very familiar text to, to most of us, but the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, actually, he didn't say that, serpent, at all. He said you can eat of all of them except one. So it's a very negative, limiting take on what they were, and that's what we, there's lessons in that too, right? We can have everything, but we want that one thing we don't have. There's a new toy. <laughs> oh, I, I gotta have that, you know? Whatever. I mean, that's, that, that's the beginning of bad things, if, if we begin to think that way. But anyway, it's a new take here. It's a different angle on things. And, and the woman says to the serpent, we, we may actually eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. And she's really got that limiting sense going on. Lest you die. He did say that. Eating of it will lead to your death. Notice verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't think we should run too quickly over verses 4 and 5. They choose to disobey, obviously, God's prohibition. They choose autonomy, self-rule, over submitting to the rule of God. That's what sin, at the end of the day, always is. We're choosing to do our own thing instead of 
uh, our maker's thing. But I want to drill a bit down, uh, a, a bit more deeply and ask why is that? What, what makes that appealing? Why do they choose autonomy over submission to God's rule? Why do they disobey? Disobedience can take many forms. All of us here together collectively have probably disobeyed God in about every way that you can. I'm just guessing. There's a lot of us here. And most of us have tried more than one form of disobedience, right, in our lives. We're sinners. It can take all kinds of forms. Let me suggest to you that a common denominator underlies them all. And that is that the choice to disobey God, to, to, to rule yourself instead of coming under the rule of God, is at the end of the day a failure to trust God. We don't really believe, not in our gut, not in, the, in, in, the, in terms of what we're going to do. You may believe it as a, a mental, intellectual you know, abstraction, something you say in a Bible class or preach in a sermon or whatever. On paper we believe it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, talking about the kind of belief that animates our existence, that, makes, that, that lies behind our choices what we are willing to do, what we are not willing to do, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what, you know, touches our identity. And that has a lot to do with the question of what are we trusting. The serpent's suggestion, which I would say is in some form repeated every single time any of us are tempted, his suggestion is this, God cannot be trusted. Not really. Not all the way. Maybe God's holding out on us. That's what Satan says. He knows something he hasn't told you. He knows that your eyes will be opened. Did he tell you that? That he's holding something back on you. Maybe God is not giving us the full picture. Maybe God won't really come through for us. Maybe he can't really be trusted to meet our needs. Hebrews 3 makes this connection between sin and mistrust, using the word unbelief. Belief in the Bible, look at James chapter 2. It's not just some mental assent to a, to a doctrine. It's what you do. That's James's point, right? You say you have faith, but you, you don't work. You don't really have faith then. He acts like that's, that's a silly thing, like they're two sides of the same coin. Because their faith means something like trust. I often think that a lot of the times we read the word believe or faith in the Bible, if it was translated trust, that would go closer to what the Bible actually means by that. But anyway, in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer is, is uh, referencing the, a moment in Israel's history, and quoting Psalm 95, which talks about this as well, he does in Hebrews 3. He says that many of these ancient Israelites mistrusted God's promise. Remember, he promised that he would personally take them to the promised land. It was going to be tricky. There was going to be a lot of you know, things that they had to go through, but he was going to get them there. Many of them did not trust him, they did not believe him deep down, and so they rebelled. So the disobedience was related to the lack of trust. Hebrews 3.12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, or mistrusting heart, leading you to fall away. That's where falling away starts. You stop believing you really can trust God in the final analysis, in a real way, in a concrete way. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And one of the ways sin deceives us is it convinces us that whatever path we're choosing, whatever path of sin we're choosing, is, is a, a better, more reliable way to get what we believe we want and need than God. God promises otherwise, but we don't really believe it. Your beliefs come out in your actions. 
What is it that gets you upset? What is it that causes your heart to soar with dreams? What is it that causes you to spend your money a certain way or your time a certain way, both of which are very finite assets? What causes you to worry? What thrills you? Those get closer to what you really believe than what you say in a Bible class, right? Or answer a test on a, on a, a seminary question or something like that. When we sin against God on some level, it's because we don't trust Him with the control of our lives. That's what He wants to do. I'm in charge. Give me your life. Be meek. Trust me. Wait on me. All those kinds of biblical injunctions. We're not convinced that He will take care of us. That He will satisfy us. So we push Him out of the car and we take the wheel of life ourselves. Let's talk about the destructiveness, destructiveness of sin. There's a huge range of havoc that sin wreaks, not only in our lives or in the lives of people close to us, but in the world. Let's talk about the spiritual alienation, if you will, that results from our sin. The, the fact that we get alienated from our God, and the trajectory of that, if you follow it out far enough, is spiritual death. It's what the Bible calls spiritual death. You can be walking around biologically alive and be spiritually dead. Right? Your heart's still beating. Daniel would not pronounce you dead yet. Um, but you're dead in the ways that really matter. Daniel might. I mean, I, you have to watch him a little bit. But um, Genesis 2, 16, 17. This is interesting. The Lord God commanded them, if you eat of this tree that's forbidden, you shall surely die. They eat of it, do they die? Not biologically. I mean, eventually, not right then, it's a long time. They're already dead or dying, though, the minute they sin. Dying is probably the right way to put it. And that is often, I mean, that's, that's the case with every human being. Sans, you know, the cross of Jesus, that's, that's, um, that's where we are. Ephesians 2, this, this is where Paul begins. He says about all humanity, the Ephesians, of course, represent everybody. You, any reader of this text, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's, that's the default path of humanity, of the world. We commit sins and trespasses, and it results in spiritual death. Why is that the case? I believe it's the case because God is the source of life. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and what? Void of what? Life. Living things. I mean, that's what the Genesis 1, the days of creation, Genesis 1, God forms the world, right, in the first three days, and he fills the world in day four, five, and six in ways that are exactly parallel. They're not the way we would talk about creation. This is ancient Near Eastern text. It's doing things that are theological and, and poetic and have literary structure much more than it's trying to give you like, you know, a Linnaean classification system for all the creatures. I mean, last time I looked, there was more than just creeping things, cattle and beasts. Right? Is my, that's what I've asked people. I've asked Sheree, I've asked some of you to come over to our house. Is our little dog, who's a whack job, very cute, sweet, whack job, is he a cattle, a creeping thing, or a beast? He's kind of a beast, but he's domesticated a little bit, sort of like a lamb or a cow. That kind of sounds like cattle. Or is he a creeping thing? I mean, he eats, he hangs out with dead lizards and, you know, worms and stuff. I, you know, that, that's not the kind of classification. He's not trying to give us a scientific account 
like modern Western science does. But if you look at day one, two, and three, they parallel day four, five, and six. The, 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 the realms are created in day one through three, and the residents of those realms fill those realms, we read in four, five, and six. But the point is, it was void until God filled it up with life, because God is the author of all life. In John 1, 4, we read the same thing about Jesus, the Word who becomes incarnate, who becomes enfleshed. All things were made through the Word. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was what? Life. Life comes from God and nowhere else. Moreover, God is the source of everything that is good and perfect. You ever think about that? James 1, 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Even if a person doesn't know it, anything good in this world ultimately traces back to God. So, here's the point I'm making. When we distance ourselves from God, which is what sin is, we're going like, nah, I got it. I'll drive. I'll call you if I need you, though. I'll get you back in when I get in a pickle, but right now, I'm, I'm driving. When we distance ourselves from God, we push Him away. We are pushing our, uh, away from ourselves the very source of all life and all blessings. That's why C.S. Lewis can write that hell is really just the ultimate outcome of humans not welcoming God. We th sometimes think, well, he's up there going like, I just can't wait to punish people. It doesn't really sound as much like that as it's like, you want to do your own thing? You're, you're a volitional free will creature. But if you want to do your own thing in eternity without me, get ready for some darkness. A dark that you don't even know. Because you're, you're going alone without the source of every good and perfect gift, without the author of life in your, in, your, in your midst. So Lewis writes that hell is kind of the space where humans have decided to run the show on their own. And the problem is, Folks, we don't know how to run the show. See, here's what he writes in, in The Great Divorce. Some of you have read this. I know, I know Nick and I have talked about this numerous times. The choice of every lost soul, C.S. Lewis writes, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Man, that's so human. I don't know, but I know this. I'm in charge. We're going to wreck this sucker, but I'm, I'm wrecking it. You know, we, we, we're all on control trips since the garden, the garden epitomizes that. We'd rather be in control half the time than right. We'd rather be in control than whole. And this is really interesting here. He says, continuing, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. More than that, though, because sin alienates us from the one in whose image we are made, it also kinds, uh, causes a kind of, of, of existential confusion within us, within each of us. So in addition to spiritual alienation, we have to talk about a kind of psychological alienation. This is one of the, the damage, uh, kinds of damage that sin does as well. If God is not in the picture, then Adam and Eve experience this internal division, each of them within themselves. 
are they, any, are they any more naked after the sin than they were before? No, it says they were, they were naked in chapter 2, verse 25, and it specifically says, and they were not ashamed. God made them that way. I don't even know what shame is. But after they sin against God, they experience shame. Genesis 3 says, she took of the fruit and ate it. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They were already naked. Now they, it's a problem. And so they make their own clothes, right? They sew fig leaves together, and they're trying to cover themselves. They make their own loincloths out of these fig leaves. I bet those really were comfortable. You ever walk into a store, you go, where are the fig leaf clothing? What aisle? I want the itchiest thing I can possibly find uh, that falls apart every, you know, second. Um, and then they're hiding from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God, verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because they've got this, this guilt, this shame. And the Lord says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, have you sinned against me? Shame is a kind, there's a lot of ways to look at shame. There's a lot of research on shame. People you know, distinguish shame from guilt in some circles. I'm not talk, doing all that right now. I, I just want to present to you the idea that shame in general is a kind of identity crisis. Maybe. It's an inner split, an internal split between who we are and who we're trying to be. Right? We're alienated from ourselves, in a sense. And there's this battle in terms of identity that's not comfortable. We're not thriving when we're in that case, and yet that's where we all are after Eden. Sidebar. Does the Genesis narrative simply... Or does it present at all the possibility of a, of a well-adjusted, psychologically integrated human being who is not in relationship with God? Is that in the picture at all? There, there, there's a kind of exclusiveness to this, I get that, but when you're reading Genesis, if that's your text, that's your, that's your orientation material throughout all of life, you simply don't read about the possibility even of a well-adjusted internally integrated human being who's outside of a relationship with God. The minute you push God away, you begin to disintegrate, if you will. You're split. You're a living identity crisis. There's a war going on inside of you about should and ought versus, eh, I really know I'm this way. And then we respond with all kinds of unbiblical ways. Blaming, you know, well, that's biblical, actually. Because Adam's going to blame me here in a second. Philippians just fell out of my Bible, but. We'll carry on. It's not what we're preaching on today. So, um, Thirdly, social destruction, social alienation. In the wake of sin, we see social conflict spiral until it's out of control. Right? I'm talking about conflict between people. Not just within you and between you and God, but between people. And, and rather than acting with love from a, a position of fullness and blessing, Humans become driven by fear and a kind of self-obsessed survivalism. Adam and Eve have strife. Cain murders Abel. Lamech in chapter 4 expresses this maniacal revenge. And by chapter 6, the whole world is consumed with violence. Doesn't take long in the story for individual sin to become systemic 
social, you know, nation versus nation, tribe against tribe, whatever it is. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Genesis 6, 5, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Doesn't sound like a, an enlightenment picture of humanity, does it? 1776, you know, we're, we've got the, we're endowed with these enabled, yeah, we're endowed with them, but like, it's a hot second before we're that. That's kind of where the Bible starts. I mean, you're, you get page one, and then page two or three on, it doesn't look like, you know, modern Western statements of what humans are. Get all the tradition and the authority out of their way and all this structure that's put on them, and pure, in their pure state, they're great. No, it's not within man's steps in, in, who walks, it's not within man who walks to direct his own footsteps. That's what the Bible says. Um, after the flood, did you know that after the flood, after God sort of decreates and recreates and says, now replenish and multiply and be fruitful, same thing he said back in the beginning, this statement is made again. It doesn't change that. Our, our, our hearts, our intentions, thoughts of our heart are only evil continually. Pre and post flood. So we got all kinds of problems. My little sin, my little sin, my little peccadillo causes all this. What about ecological alienation, the fourth one? Remember that divine mandate to steward creation, the first thing said about human beings in Genesis 1.27? In Genesis 2.15, to protect the garden, to serve it and protect it is the meaning of the Hebrew word, Genesis 2.15. That's been given to Adam and then Eve as well. But now the ground, Adam is a ground being, Adam means ground being. That's what Adam means, and Adam and Adama, which is the ground. We talked about all that. They're so connected. Now that very ground is cursed. Why? Because of him. Because of what he did. Because of what Eve did. And so often since then, responsible stewardship by human beings of the creation has been set aside for selfish, selfish ex, uh, exploitation. So you almost can't cast the, the, the negative net of sin too widely from a biblical perspective. A fellow I've been reading this week, I love Terrence Fretheim, he passed away a year or so ago, but Old Testament scholar, he writes this in a book called God and World in the Old Testament. He says, the primal sin may thus be defined as mistrust of God and God's word, which then manifests itself in disobedience and other negative behaviors, like blaming. Faced with the choices the tree presents, the human beings mistrust God and violate the divine prohibition. Sometimes... Obedience or disobedience is considered to be the central issue, but disobedience of the law, certainly present in this text, is always symptomatic of a more basic issue, namely the human mistrust of God. And then look what he says in the second paragraph. The sin has led to dissonance in every relationship between humans, humans and God, humans and animals, the snake, humans and the earth, and within the self. Every aspect of creaturely life is touched. And I want everybody to notice this last statement. Because this is us. Humans wanted to transcend creaturely limits. They have found newly intensified forms of limitation. Sin does the opposite of what it promises. It will liberate me, fulfill me. No, it will enslave you and frustrate you and condemn you. And a whole lot of uh, collateral damage. What's God's response? How does God respond to this tragic state of affairs? 
he lovingly entrusting this to us, deputizing us to be his co-rulers, his co-regents, and this is what we do with that charge. And on one level, sin separates us from God. You know the text in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, the Lord God sent them out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And that's a tragic statement, given what Genesis has said so far about Adam and the ground. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Anybody remember where else in the Bible cherubim um, sort of were at the threshold, at the entrance? Tabernacle. tabernacle and temple. What were the tabernacle and temple? God's presence. This has to have something to do with that. You're not all the way in my presence. Hmm. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Our iniquities, our lawlessness, our autonomy make a separation between us and, and God. So on one level, sin separates us from God. It, it creates distance. But separation alone, if that's the answer we give when we're asked, well, what, what, how does God respond to human sin? That would be the grossest distortion of the biblical story almost imaginable. Because why do we have page 3 through Revelation 22? You know? Why do we have the other 99.9% .9 of the Bible? If it's done, it'd be a half-truth or worse. God the Creator hardly abandons His creation, even after we sin. There are signs of divine grace even amidst the story of the fall. As, as we're, he's working through the curses, you know, to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, and to the ground. Even amidst that part of the narrative, we see these little glimpses of divine grace. One of them is in G Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 21, when it says the Lord, just kind of a little, it seems like a throwaway statement, the Lord God made for Adam and, and, and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They're being kicked out of the garden. Why not just go, like, you know what? Good enough for you. Enjoy your fig leaf, sinner. You disobeyed God. You can, imagine the guilt trip. I mean, I'd probably be sermons preached on that. But that's a half-truth. And incidentally, the fig leaves were loincloths. The Hebrew word here suggests actual clothing. He, he's handling their nakedness on some level. God intended them to be naked without shame, but it's like, all right, if we're going to do clothes, let me give you the right kind. You know, real ones. That's an act of grace, is what that is. And I believe it's a harbinger. It kind of foreshadows and gives us a glimpse of the character of the God um, that we're dealing with in the story. Now, there's another little tidbit here in, in the same text. Genesis 3.20. Remember, the woman has been called, well, woman. Adam named her Isha. He's Ish, you know, and she's Isha which suggests their unity, but also that they're different. He's made from her side and so on. Now he gives her another name. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. You may have a note in the margin of your Bible, possibly. If not, you can look this up later. But in Hebrew, the word Eve sounds a lot like the word for living. And so this is a hint, a biblical narrative hint for the rest of the Bible, that the blessing of life and fertility is going to be allowed to go on in God's world despite 
this disaster created by human sin. Remember, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, you know, rule over it with God and all that. They're still going to be able to be fruitful and multiply. This is a blessing. It's not over. It doesn't make any sense if it's all over. He's not done with them. He's not done with creation. And then built into the curse pronounced on the serpent is a cryptic but very hopeful promise. In Genesis 3, verse 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity, that is, you know, warfare, you're going to be enemies, an enemy relationship, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your version may say seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring of woman will be hurt, there'll be a heel bruise, but Satan's, or I shouldn't say Satan here in the text, just serpent, Satan we, we know from later, but the serpent is going to have his head bruised or crushed by some vague being or line called the offspring or the seed of woman. Very vague. If we only had Genesis 3, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what that's really talking about. Like who, what offspring? But whoever they are, or whatever this is, it's going to deal the death blow, the final blow to this author of sin in the garden. And though it's unclear at this point in terms of the identity of this offspring or seed, the rest of Genesis will begin to define for us who that offspring is, right? Genesis, remember, starts off as wide as you could possibly start, the heavens and the earth. It narrows down to, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, chapter 12, the call of Abraham, a particular dude in Ur, you know, in, in, in Mesopotamia, modern-day Kuwait, I think it would be. And he, he is called to leave and go to a land that God will show him. And fast-forwarding again, he, he, his descendants are going to be the Hebrew people. And one of them will be a person, again, narrowing down further, who is named Jacob and renamed Israel, who becomes the father of the Israelites, the nation of Israel, who are later known as the Jews. And they're called in the Old Testament two or three times God's light to the nations. Called Israel from the world, but ultimately for the world. They're a light to the world. He's not done with the world. So he's working through the offspring of, 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 of this woman, through the Israelite people, to bring about some sort of solution. And we know later that this is ultimately a reference to Jesus. What does the Gospel of John call Jesus? Israel was a light to the world, a light to the nations, and Jesus is called the light of the world. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is referred to as the second or new Adam, the real image bearer of God, who did it right, who didn't abdicate the role given by God, but followed through, was, was faithful, was trusting. And as the second Adam, he can reconcile and restore and redeem what was lost with the first Adam's sin. And so, indeed, God's continuing involvement in creation and in His plan to redeem and to renew and to recreate is the actual wording used. I, behold, I create new heavens and new earth. Anyone is in Christ, new creation, new creature. This is the language of rebirth. It's not a tweak. It's a, re, it, it, it's a, you know, a, a, a whole new start. That's, that's what we end up talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5. Reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
He is or there is a new creation. We are, if we're in Christ, new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, but then gives us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Make no sin, no mistake. I got the word sin in bold, like 45 font, and it made me say, make no sin. <laughs> make no mistake, sin. And I'm talking whether Adam and Eve's, or mine or yours. It launches way more far-reaching effects than we usually imagine. It's a pebble tossed into the pond. Sends these barely perceptible ripples out in all directions. Each of those ripples depositing some of its alienating influence on everything it touches. I will visit the sins of you and your generation on your children and your children's children and your children's children. I don't think that's a picture of God going, I'm going to get them because you were bad. I think that's built in. We're relational. We never weren't. It's not just you as an individual in this backdrop, this set for you and your story. That's kind of the modern Western storyline, really, if you boil it all down. No, we're connected, we always were, to creation, to each other. I mean, Eve is like a split off from Adam. And every other human is really related. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, actually, you are. And Jesus will be the older brother who goes out and finds the prodigal, whereas everybody else abdicates. Reconciliation can reverse the influence of that pebble and bring redemption and renewal where there was death and alienation. Come back next week for more on that. Okay, we'll keep talking about the heart of reconciliation, but next we're going to talk about how individual redemption and reconciliation can have the same rippling, pervasive, uh, widespreading impact that sin can have. And so we should never belittle the importance of that vertical reconciliation to God. That's really where the problem started, that's really where the solution starts. That's how God made it. Thank you for your attention. We will all now together stand and sing.